So if you've been here at all this summer, you will know that we have been doing a summer psalm series, the nice alliteration that Chris talked about, summer psalm series since the beginning of the summer until now and continuing for the next few weeks. Every week we've been looking at a psalm, um, and I don't know about you, but I've just been loving this series so far this summer, just the vast diversity within the psalms. There's so many words about so many different topics and so many emotions and so many things to learn and draw from them. And we've been getting just some awesome perspectives from, from Dr. Jim, from Lou, from Chris. And hopefully you feel like you can get something out of what I talk about too. Hopefully that's good. I love this series. We're learning some incredible things. We're spending some time in the Psalms. And I love it. Today, we are going to be looking at Psalm 51. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to open up, or if you have the Bible on your phone and you want to do that, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is another Psalm of David. And if you were here the last time I preached, back in July, where we left David off, who can remember? He was, what was David doing? Does anyone remember what David was doing? He was on the run. Saul the king was trying to kill him. David fleed for his life and he was on the run escaping from Saul. Now since that time, when we come to Psalm 51, by this time... There was a little bit of back and forth. David would escape from Saul. Saul would catch David. David would escape again. Saul would chase after him again. Things happened. Eventually, Saul turned from God. Saul died. And eventually, years later, David was made king. And at this point, David has been king for a number of years. And David was a great king for a number of years. He led his armies in in righteous battle against the enemies. He served God, he loved God, he served his people, he followed God's will, and was a great king. But in the famous words of Harvey Dent, you either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And as is the case with many of our Old Testament characters, David lived long enough to see himself a little bit become the villain. We read in the very intro of Psalm 51, it says, For the director of music... A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. We have this great godly king following God's will, but apparently he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, some of you here will be very familiar with this story. You will have heard the story of David and Bathsheba maybe many times if you've been around the church, but some of you may not be as familiar with this story, so allow me to do a brief recap of the story. David was the king, and in the springtime, a lot of times the kings in that day would take their armies and they would go and conquer the enemies, they would conquer lands, they would go to fight in the springtime. But after a while, David decided one spring, you know what, I'm the king, I've done a lot of fighting, I've done my duty, you know what, I'm going to stay at home and stay safe where there is no fighting, and I'm going to send my armies off to do the fighting for me. I'm going to stay home this time, sit this one out. So David sent his armies away, and one night he's sitting in bed, and for whatever reason, David can't sleep. So he gets up, and he goes and decides, you know what, I have this gorgeous palace, I'm going to go walk around on the roof of the palace. So he goes and starts walking on the roof, and I imagine it was probably like a flat roof, not like a big, it probably wasn't like a big awkward peak that he was like climbing around. It was probably like a big flat roof where you could see the whole city. So he's walking around on his palace, and he notices something under the corner of his eye. He sees what's described as a very beautiful woman, and she's bathing. 
Now, David, being a good, godly king, of course he sees, whoa, that's a naked woman. i got to cover my eyes and walk away and go back inside, right? Well, no, he doesn't do that. David stops, and he stares, and he starts thinking in his mind, I'm the king. So he calls one of his servants, and I imagine his servant comes up, and, and David's like, see that woman over there? And his servant's like, whoa, whoa, I mean, yes, David, I, I, what? And David's like, go find out who that is. And the servant's like, okay. And so he goes, and he finds out some information, he comes back to David, and the servant says, her name is Bathsheba, she's actually married to one of your soldiers, his name is Uriah the Hittite. So of course, when David hears, oh no, this woman, she's a married woman, I need to stop, I can't cross any more lines, she's a married woman, I need to quit. No, wrong again. All David heard from his servant was, her husband's a soldier, so he's off at war, she's all alone, he's not here. We read that David sent his servant and said, go and bring her to me. Now, I don't know what the situation would have looked like when the servant showed up at Bathsheba's house. I don't know if he would have just said, the king wants to see you, and maybe she's thinking, why would the king want to see me? I've never met him. (gasps) Something must have happened to my husband. Maybe she thought that. Or maybe the servant was just blatant and straight up with her and said, hey, the king saw you bathing and he liked what he saw, so uh, why don't you come on over to the palace? Either way, this poor young woman has got to be scared and confused. But at this time, if the king says something, you do it. So she came to the palace. We read that David slept with her and then sent her on her way. David thought he got away with it. He had a free night of pleasure. But unfortunately for him, a little while later, he gets a message from Bathsheba. And it's three simple words, probably the three scariest words for anyone who's had a one-night stand. I am... Pregnant. I am pregnant. So of course, David must realize at this point, I'm busted. There's no way I can hide this. I'm, I'm done. She's pregnant. I'm busted. I gotta go confess my sins. And no. He doesn't. Wrong again. He thinks, how can I cover this up? I've got it. I'll bring her husband home from war for a night. I'll ask him about the battle to see how things are going, make some small talk. And then I'll send him home. He'll sleep with his wife. They'll just think that it's his baby. No one will be the wiser. So David brings Uriah home from war. But unfortunately, again for him, Uriah is a very honorable man. And when David says, go home and have a good night and then go back to war tomorrow, Uriah sleeps on the ground in front of the palace. He says, all of my friends, my family, my comrades, they're all out at war. They are fighting They're scared for their life. They're sleeping on the ground or in tents. How can I go home and enjoy my bed and my wife when they're out doing that? So he sleeps on the ground. So David tries one more time. He says, come and dine with me, Uriah. Stay one more night. He has a big feast. He fills him with lots of wine, gets him super drunk. But still, Uriah sleeps on the ground in front of the palace. So David, seeing no other option, writes a scroll, seals it, hands it to Uriah, says, Uriah, take this scroll to your commanding officer, go back to the battle, and give it to him to read it. Again, Uriah is an honorable man, so he does not open that scroll. He takes it to his officer who reads it, and it's instructions from David to have Uriah killed. He says, put Uriah at the front lines, go and start battling, 
and then everyone else pull back and leave him out there and don't tell him to come back and he'll get killed. So we read that Uriah dies. David marries Bathsheba. He thinks all his troubles are gone away with. They have a son and they live happily ever after. No. Because Nathan, the prophet from God, comes and says, David, you dummy! You've been serving God for how long now? And you don't think that he knows what you did? He's been with you every step of the way. God knows what you did with Bathsheba. God knows what you did with Uriah. God knows everything, David. He knows about your wife and how she wasn't your wife, but she's now your wife. He knows about your son. God knows, and there's going to be some consequences. Now, I don't know whoever says that the Bible is boring, but, like, this is some real stuff right here. Like, this is, like, prime reality TV material. This is, like, real Housewives of Jerusalem going on. Right? This is a crazy story. At last, David is confronted with his sin. He finally admits his wrongdoings. And in response, he writes this beautiful psalm that we're going to read today that's vulnerable and it's real. And he's just asking for God's mercy. And through this whole psalm, I want you to notice this one incredible truth that David conveys, which is that God is concerned with our outward action, but God is also concerned with the inward heart responsible for our outward action. Say it one more time. God is concerned with our outward action, but God is also concerned with the inward heart responsible for our outward action. So with this theme and this thought in mind, let's start into Psalm 51. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Pardon me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, David is great at getting his point across right in the beginning, right? He says, God, you are loving. God, you're compassionate. God, I messed up bad. And God, I need your mercy. He says, God, I need you to erase, to blot out, to wash away, to cleanse me of my sin. Now, in the Old Testament law, there were specific rules and rituals associated with people and things being ceremonially clean. Now, this isn't talking about dirt or if something actually, like, you pick up a piece of, like, white clothing and it's, like, brown and dirty. We're not talking about just dirt. We're talking about ceremonially clean. And this happened from a whole pile of different things. If you really want to know all about it, check out Leviticus, check out Numbers. You can hear all about it. But here David uses some of those terms that associate with those rituals. When he says, wash me and cleanse me, he's conveying this idea of, yes, a garment that is unclean, ceremonially and needs to be washed so that it can be made ceremonially clean through ritual. But instead of saying, I've sinned and therefore I need to do this ritual to be clean, what David is actually saying is, God, I'm the one who's unclean. I'm the one who's sinned here. My sin has made me unclean. It wasn't from an outside circumstance. It was from me. I am unclean because of my sin. 
And right away, David is referencing, as C. John Collins points out, he calls it the inner condition that the ceremony points to. So right away, David is saying, I know that this ceremony is about cleansing, but at the heart of the matter, right here, I am a sinner and I need to be cleansed. It's the inner condition that the ceremony points to. Let's continue reading in verse 3. In this section I call the tough truth, because there's some really tough truths in this. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now verse 3 says, My sin is always before me. And you have to imagine that when David married Bathsheba, he's thinking, this is the perfect way to cover up my mistake. I'll marry her, she'll have a baby, no one will be any the wiser. Her husband just died in war, so why wouldn't I marry her? But now that his sin has been made public, it's been revealed, it's been called out, now i got to imagine that every time David sees Bathsheba, it's a reminder of his sin. Every time he sees this beautiful woman, it's a reminder that he committed adultery with her, that he had her husband murdered. My sin is always before me. He says in verse 4, verse 4, wow, sorry. Against you, you only have I sinned. And this is a little confusing to me at first when I read it because if you do the tally here, David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David arguably sinned against his commanding officer in the army by making him murder an innocent man. He probably sinned against his servant by making him go check in on this bathing woman. David sinned against a lot of people, not just God. So why does he say, you only have I sinned against? Again, David is getting back to the heart of the matter, that when you sin against another person, you are sinning against God. And hiding sin just makes it worse. See, David had plenty of chances to repent. He had plenty of opportunities to change the direction he was going, but he didn't. Instead, he tried to cover it up, and he didn't admit his failures until he was confronted. Now, who here grew up with siblings semi-close to their age? Anybody here? Hopefully a lot of people. I grew up with two sisters, but they are significantly older than me, uh, by like 15 and 17 years. Um, so I didn't grow up with my sisters. But I've seen a lot of people growing up with their siblings. So, And, and some of you might understand this situation when I talk about it. Did you ever have one of those situations maybe when you were a kid with your siblings, where something happened in the house. Maybe a vase was broken. Maybe walls were drawn on. Maybe the puppy was tied up or something. I don't know. Maybe something was going on. And maybe mom or dad confronted you and all your siblings and maybe lined you up against the wall and said, I want to know who broke this vase. And all of you just stood there like this. In those moments, many times, what we see is parents will say to the children, if you come forward to me, if the guilty party admits their mistake, you're still going to be punished, but it'll be a very fair punishment. But, if I figure out who does this, and no one has come forward to me, you're going to have to deal with your father. 
We're going to have another conversation. The consequences are going to be firmer. Because not only have you done the original crime of breaking the vase, drawing on the walls, whatever you did, but now you've done the crime of sinning against me. Now you've lied to me. And that's not okay. So David says this truth in verse 4. After he says, Against you, you only, I have sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David's saying, God, if you are going to bring about justice in this situation, I deserve to be punished. That's my fault. I can't hold that against you. I did what you told me not to do. I have messed up. And you are a God that judges. Now think of this in contrast to the psalm I spoke on last time where David was being attacked by men for no reason other than Saul wanted him dead. And David was all about, God, bring your justice, bring your judgment, punish these wrongdoers for what they're doing. But now here, David is the wrongdoer. And he knows it. In verse 5 and 6, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Again, David's taking it back further to the heart of the matter. He's saying, this sin, it's a big deal, but it's not an isolated incident. You might think of me as a great king. I've done some incredible things, but I've been a sinner my entire life. In fact, since before I was born, because all humans are sinners. Even though I've done great things and God has used me in incredible ways, I'm a sinful human being and I should know better. Let's continue on into verse 7. This is a, a chunk that I call David's plea for redemption. David says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, I don't know if anyone in here knows what hyssop is, but once again, it's some ceremonial language. Um, In some of these cleansing rituals, there was a plant called hyssop, and it was, from what I read, very branchy and very kind of fuzzy. And so what they would do is they would, part of the ceremony and the ritual would involve dipping it in either blood or water or a blood and water combo. And when you lifted it up, it could be used to sprinkle that liquid as part of the cleansing ritual. It's kind of disgusting sounding, but at the time, this is what the rule was. And specifically, it was used in Leviticus and in Numbers um, for the cleansing of someone who either had leprosy or some kind of skin disease and the cleansing of someone who had touched a dead body when they had come back to camp. And so this plant of hyssop was used to sprinkle. And the thing that's interesting about these rituals, and Derek Kidner points this out in his commentary, is that at the end of these rituals, there was a very clear pronouncement. Once this is done, you will be clean. Once you've been sprinkled with the blood and the bird and the water and the washing, whatever the ritual is, you will be clean. And here David is taking that own pronouncement on himself. He's saying, God, it's not just about the ritual anymore. God, I'm the sinner. You need to make me clean. I need you to cleanse me. In verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. And here, 
we have this picture of, um, again, someone who was ceremonially unclean sometimes had to leave the camp. They had to leave the society until they were clean again so they wouldn't contaminate society. And when they came back, you got to imagine that people were just excited. I haven't seen you in a couple days because you've been out in the wilderness, or I haven't seen you because you had to be cleansed. And there was joy and welcoming and gladness as they returned, the outcast returning home. And that's the picture we have here of David. Let me hear joy and gladness. God, I want to be returned into your presence with joy, with gladness. I want people to be happy to see the outcast come home. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And David, I love this imagery. It's like this idea that David's guilt is crushing him to the bone. And I don't know about you, but when I've felt guilt sometimes, when I've done something bad, it feels like that guilt is crushing me. He says, the bones that have crushed, what does he say? Let them rejoice. God, I want to feel joy from my very bones. I don't want to feel that crushing guilt anymore. I want to feel your joy bursting forth from me as if it's coming from my very bones. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Again, repeating this phrase that he used in verse 1, blot out my iniquity, but this time saying, God, I want you to blot out all of my sin because, yeah, we're talking about this sin with Uriah and Bathsheba, but I'm a sinner and I have lots of sin and God, I need you to erase all of it. Hide your face from it. Make it as though my sin's over here and you turn your head and you can't even see it anymore. Hide your face from my sin. And then we have this oh-so-famous verse. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He says, renew and restore. And so here we have this picture of, God, I was up here. I followed you. I loved you. I rejoiced. I sang. I was in your presence. But this sin has brought me back down here. And I want you to renew and restore me back up to that place that I was before. I want you to bring me back to where I was. But he goes further because he says, create in me a clean heart. He says, there's some parts of me that were never good enough. I have a sinner's heart. And God, what I need from you is to be the creator, God, and perform a miracle where you can give me a heart that is not the heart of a sinner, but a heart that is pure like yours. In this verse in the middle, he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 11. This is another declaration of David not taking God's grace for granted. He's saying, this is what I want. I don't know if you're going to grant me this, but this is what I want. Acknowledging that God's justice could and should mean his own judgment. And he says, cast not your Holy Spirit from me, take it not from me. Because David saw what happened to his predecessor, Saul. Because Saul was appointed by God at one time. But Saul chose to turn his back on God and turn away from God. And God's spirit came from him. And David does not want that to happen to himself. Not just for the sake of being a good king or his kingship or his kingdom. But why? Verse 12. Because he wants to revel in the joy of salvation. He's not just worried about his kingdom, but he doesn't want God's presence or his spirit to depart from him because he wants to be filled with joy at God's salvation. What an incredible idea. 
Now, at this point in the text, we take a shift from David pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness to David doing something that he does a lot, and I talked about it last time, is that David prays and he sings and he writes these words believing that God will make them happen. David writes these words in faith that God will provide. It's an anticipation of grace, starting in verse 13. Then, after all these things are done, after you've granted me mercy, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I love this verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. This is once again David saying, God, I want to take this awful situation, this awful choice I made, and I want to use it for your glory. God, I want your forgiveness, not just for my sake, but so that I can point to this moment and say, I am a sinner and God has forgiven me. I will teach transgressors your ways. I will teach others to not make the same mistakes that I have. I will teach them the truth of your word and of your grace. And Kidner points out that the very fact that we can read this psalm is that verse 13 being lived out. Because David wrote these words to teach people about God's ways. You'll notice there's a little thing I kind of skipped over at the beginning. It said, at the very intro, that this psalm is for the director of music. David didn't just write this psalm for himself. He wrote it to be given to the choir master so that all of the people could sing this psalm and learn about God's mercy and learn about God's works. He wrote it to be sang corporately. He's using his mistakes, his screw-ups, as a means of teaching others about God's redemption. I love this quote from Collins, who I mentioned before. He says, The proper posture of the penitent is to crave a fresh sense of God's presence and a deeper purification of the moral life and a credible witness to the unfaithful. And what he means by that is a saying is that when someone is truly repentant, you'll notice three things. One of them is that they long to be in God's presence again. They want to feel God. They're missing feeling God in their life. And second of all, they want to be a better person. They want to do better next time. They don't want to fall into the same sin and temptation. And third of all, they're concerned about their witness to other people. They want to be able to teach other people still about God, maybe even through their own mistakes. Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. And here it's hard to not just picture David thinking about Uriah, the man that he had murdered. Thinking about the guilt. He craves freedom from that guilt that is haunting him. But I think in a corporate sense as well, because he wrote this from more than just himself, it's as though David is encouraging future worshippers by saying, I did a lot of sin here. I have bloodshed guilt on my conscience. I had a man killed. 
I slept with his wife. I did some awful things. And people, if God can forgive me for those things, he can forgive you of your sins as well. He says in verse 15, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling with the guilt of a sin, when I've committed a sin, when I'm struggling with that shame, it can make it very difficult for me to want to worship, especially on a Sunday morning. How can I come into this this place with all these people who are so good, all these people who are so loving and who just love God, how can I come into this place and praise God when I've chosen to sin against him? How can I do that? And here we picture David saying basically the same thing. God, I want you to open my lips. I want you to free me from the shame that has silenced me so that I can sing and I can praise you again. What a beautiful picture. God, open my lips. Free me from that shame. Verse 16, probably one of the more confusing verses in the text. David says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, it's a little confusing. And people like to make a contradiction out of this because if God created the sacrifice system, he created all these rules, all these rituals, burning animals and different stuff like that, why would David say, you do not delight in sacrifice? Why would David say that? If God created sacrifices as a form of worship and penitence, why would God not delight in sacrifice? Let me try and illustrate it in a bit of a different way. So, if I told you all right now that I drive a nice, really flashy sports car, it's really fast, it's really flashy, it looks amazing, and then we took you all out into the parking lot after, and I stood beside my car and I showed it to you, 99% of you would look at me and look at my dirty old 06 Toyota Corolla with over 300,000 kilometers on it and say, you're a joke. You don't have to be a car person to know that a Toyota Corolla is not a fast sports car. It's just not. Now, say we change the situation a bit. Maybe I put some money into my car. Maybe I put a big flashy spoiler on the back add a nice body kit on it, a new coat of paint, lower that suspension, get one of those big obnoxious exhausts on it so it purrs like a kitten. I put a racing stripe down it, stick some stickers on the windows of racing companies. Maybe you come outside and you see my car and I say, I drive this fast sports car. Maybe some of you might see this and think, yeah, yeah, you're right. That looks That looks like a cool sports car. But there's still a lot of you in this room right now who know anything about cars who would say, it's still a Corolla. It's still just a Corolla. Because what matters in having a fast sports car is not just what it looks like on the outside, but what's on the inside. What is under the hood, as I've titled this message. And it's the same situation that David is talking about here with the sacrificial system. He's saying... God, I could make sacrifices, and that would look good. That would look flashy. That's what you've asked us to do. I would make some sacrifices. But those sacrifices are pointless if my heart is still turned away from you. 
I can put all the paint and work onto the outside of my Corolla I want, but if I don't change what's under the hood, what's in the heart, it's still just a Corolla. I can make all the sacrifices in the world if that would make a difference. But God, what you want is a repentant heart that longs for more of your presence. And it's verses like these that help me understand why David David is described as a man after God's own heart. Because right here, David understands God's heart. He understands that God doesn't want us to just do good things or worship Him or come and sing the songs just because we're supposed to, but because our hearts are so in tune and connected with God that we can't help but praise Him. We can't help but trust Him. We can't help but follow Him because our hearts are so connected to His heart. And it's verses like these that help me understand why when God sent Jesus, His redemptive plan for the earth, He sent Him through a descendant of David. John 1.14 says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And sometimes we like to make Jesus into either grace or either truth. I think if we're being honest in the church, not just this church, but the global church, a lot of times as Christians we struggle with this. We say, Jesus is all about grace and forgiveness of sins, so he's not about rules. Therefore, we can follow Jesus without changing our lives. We can do whatever we want because Jesus is of grace and he'll forgive us. It's pendulumed a bit too far towards the grace side. But sometimes we pendulum the other way to the truth side. We say, no, Jesus is all about truth. He's all about rules and holiness and perfection. And we can't be out there fraternizing with sinners unless, of course, we're taking the time and taking it upon ourselves to point out each and every one of their sins and tell them that they're going to hell. We sometimes make Jesus into either grace or either truth, but we read that Jesus is fully grace and fully truth in the same way that God is fully Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense because grace and truth don't seem like they make sense together. But Jesus is fully both of those. And I think David understood that aspect of God's character more than most because at this moment, David understands the truth, the harsh reality. I broke God's law and God deserves to punish me. I deserve punishment. But David also understood God's grace and that God, what God really desired was a repentant heart. God wanted to forgive him. Now, that doesn't mean he was free of consequences. You can read about those in 2 Samuel 12, the consequence of his sin. But what he was free of was the shame that was holding him back from connecting with God. We just got two more verses here. Psalm 51, verse 17. Or verse 18, sorry. May it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Now there's mixed opinions on these two verses with, um, with scholars out in the world with different commentaries, where some say that because this was a corporate psalm designed for all the people, that maybe these verses were added in later after the Israelites had been exiled, David was long dead, they'd been exiled, and they were coming back to Jerusalem to build up the wall, that maybe these verses were added then as sort of like a, a final little, a little tag, or like when we add an extra chorus to a hymn. 
Maybe that's the case. But instead, I liked the perspective that suggests that David wrote these words actually as an encouragement for those who were worshiping with the psalm that he wrote. May it please you to prosper Zion. It's as if he's saying, God, at the end of it all, I've learned about your grace. I've repented. I've come back to you. And all I want is for all of God's people, all of Zion, all of Jerusalem, to understand the same thing, that we can repent and come back to you, that we can prosper together as a people, that we can worship and praise you for your glory. And friends, that's my hope and prayer for all of us here today, that maybe you're here and you are living in a lifestyle of sin. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you're here and you're someone who, on the surface, looks great, but you're struggling with sin in private that no one knows about. Or maybe you're here and sin you don't think is really a big issue for you. My hope is that today, all of us would realize the truth, the harsh truth that David understood that we are all sinners and we deserve nothing more than God's justice and his judgment. That's the truth. But my hope is that you see the other side of the story, which is that there is also this incredible grace that God sent Jesus so that all of our sins, from that little white lie, to the after-church gossip, to the hate, to the worry, to the doubt, to the lust, to the lies, to something as bad as David's committing of adultery and murder. God sent Jesus so all of those sins can be forgiven, washed, cleansed, erased, blotted out. And along with that sin, God can wash away the shame that we so often let get in the way of us worshiping and connecting with God. Friends, my hope is today that we would understand these things, not just on the surface, but in our hearts, where it counts, on the inside, under the hood, that we would understand that what God wants is our heart to long for him, so that together we can praise and glorify God as a community, as a church, as God's people, free of the weight of the sin that crushes us so often. Let's pray.